How familiar are you with classic literature? Got any AP kids here? Know the classic literature? So if I was to say, um, name this novel. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. What novel would that be? Come on now, somebody knows this. What, what? Moby Dick, no, not Moby Dick. <laughs> Tale of Two Cities. Tale of Two Cities. Who wrote it? Moby Dick. <laughs> That's it. Close. No, it wasn't Herman Melville. Who was it? Charles Dickens. Okay. What was it about? Two cities. Very, very good. Somebody, my wife, of course. Um, two cities. Yeah, yeah. That was a good one. Um, it was about two cities. The cities were London, England, and Paris, good. Paris, France. And it's about the 18th century and what happened in the events that led up to the French Revolution. Dickens is sympathetic to the revolution, doesn't really like the reign of terror a whole lot. All right? So that's what it's about. Now, we're talking about that today because today we're going to continue our uh, Fork in the Road series. And remember, in the Fork in the Road, we, we find that um, Paul just keeps hitting a fork in the road. He keeps going to different places that God is leading him as a missionary uh, with, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. And he also becomes a fork in the road for people, that they have to turn one way or the other in meeting Christ in him. But today, he's going to go to two cities. And so it's going to be the tale of two cities. And the cities are Thessalonica and Berea. So we're going to learn about them today in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Let me read that to us, and we'll, uh, we'll go from there. It says, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, don't you like the names of those towns? They came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some, of, some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scripture, scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed as did also a number of prominent Greek men and many Greek, Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. 
The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The man who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So the tale of two cities. First of all, we see that Thessalonica is more hostile. Now, as before we get into Thessalonica, just a quick background of what happened last week. Remember, they went to what had been the ancient, uh, the ancient kingdom of Macedonia, once under Philip, the Ma- Philip of Macedon, uh, or they call him Philip the Macedon, and his son, the brilliant Alexander the Great. But now it's a province under the rule of the Roman Empire. And so they are going to go from where they are. So they were at Mycenae. Remember, they went from Tros up to Philippi, and that's part of Macedonia. And while they were there, what happened? They, they got beat up. They were whipped. They were beaten. They were thrown in prison. They came out, and they started a little church that met in the house of a lady who was a Gentile or non-Jewish businesswoman and her household. And soon a jailer and his household would come and join it and a little slave girl who had recently been um, delivered from demonic influence. And that starts the church. Now, Paul and Silas, and they don't name Timothy here, but his name pops up later. It appears that they moved on and they left Philippi, but they left behind Luke. Luke is the author of the book, and he stops talking about himself in the first person. So Luke is no longer part of this. Luke, the good doctor, as we know he's a physician, appears to stay behind and modestly doesn't talk about himself, but we can infer that he stayed there and he took leadership of this little church. And the other guys take off, and they go to these other towns. What's interesting about these towns is they're all about 25 to 30 miles apart from each other, which was a day's journey. Can you imagine that? That's what you would walk in one day. So they are moving quickly. And they're going to each town. And this is amazing because these guys, their bodies are all beat up and they have their legs in stocks. They're walking funny and they have black eyes and they're all beat up and, and everything. There's amazing what adrenaline can do. I mean, they're just kind of running on fumes and, and God is giving them the strength they need. And they, but they want to get to this location. It is obvious that they're at about, about getting to Thessalonica. They're taking the famous Via Ignatia Road the famous Roman road to Thessalonica. Why do they want to get to Thessalonica so bad? Because Thessalonica was called the metropolis of Macedonia. It was the most important town. Thessalonica had this perfect location because it was the link between the, the, you know, the fertile agriculture and a port. And so they could take all the agriculture, take it to the seaport, and then ship it off to wealthy locales in the east. So they did pretty well at Thessalonica. We have a lot of ancient coins from Thessalonica. I know, Joe, Joe you know, you uh, collect ancient coins. What does it tell us? What would it mean that they, we find a lot of coins there? What does that tell us about Thessalonica? Money, yeah. They had a lot of money there. And there were a lot of people. In fact, we think there were over 200,000 people there at the time. Mostly Greeks, there was a mix of some others, and there was a Jewish colony there. So Paul's thinking, right, strategic location for me to spread the gospel. So they head over to Thessalonica. First thing he does is he goes to a Jew- the Jewish synagogue that he finds. He speaks there for three Saturdays or three Sabbath days. Those are the days that they would worship. It almost sounds like he was there for just three weeks, but it was probably spread out over time. Because when we later read the first epistle to the Thessalonians, which was the letter he wrote to the Thessalonian church later, it sounds like there were, you know, 
quite a few things that he taught these people. So it wasn't just a three-week stay, probably several months that he's there. And notice how he reasons with them, he explains to them, he proves to them, he finds every way he can to discuss the gospel message with them. And what's key is what he does when, he, when he's speaking to them, he doesn't refer simply to his knowledge. Where does he go to? He goes to the scriptures. Did you notice that? He goes to the Bible. Now, the Bible, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. James, the brother of our Lord, uh, who was the great elder in Jerusalem, apparently has written the, the epistle of James, which is the first letter linking the, the, the story of Jesus with what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to practice their faith. We studied it last summer. And then Paul himself probably wrote Galatians, which was the letter that he wrote to modern Turkey, to Galate, what was then called Galatia, and the people that he first reached out to, telling them that this gospel is open for all people, Jew and Gentile, and talking about the grace of God. And that's probably it. So he's referring to the Old Testament, and he's showing them from the Old Testament how Old Testament prophecies, probably looking at like Isaiah and saying that the Messiah that they were waiting for to come and save them was supposed to suffer. Not only was he supposed to suffer, but he was supposed to die. Now, when we say, what exactly was Paul saying? You can go back to Acts chapter 13, and he probably gave a very similar message that he gave in Acts chapter 13. One of the things he says in Acts chapter 13 is he talks about Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. And he talks about King David. And King David prophesies, my son, my descendant, the Holy One, the Messiah, I will have a descendant who will be the Messiah, will not see decay. I'll tell you what, my body right now is not decaying. Well, sometimes I wonder, but, but it's not decaying. But it will when I die. So to say that it's not going to decay is to assume that this body, when it dies, is, is not going to die. Um, or when it dies, is, you know, well, it, it doesn't make any sense. And Paul makes sense out of it. He says, yes, he will die, but he won't decay because he'll come back to life. And then he delivers the knockout punch. And I can tell you who he is. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He died and he rose from the grave. Now, this happened about 20 years earlier. So this is still pretty recent. And certainly they've heard the stories about Jesus. You think they'd be more excited? Some Jewish people are, but not that many. But the Greek people are more excited. These God-fearing Greeks would be Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. And they're now being told that you don't have to be a Jew to come into heaven. It, you can come as you are because God's, the door is open for everyone. So they're excited. And they get involved, and as always, there's always large amounts of women that get involved. It's, it's just so freeing to become part of the Christian faith. And so they're exciting, excited about it. And some of these are prominent women or women that were, you know, are married to prominent men. Got a start, not fantastic, but a good start. And then the backlash comes. Always have the backlash, right? And you always have people that get upset. In this case, there's these Jewish people that are jealous or really they're angry at them but they're angry at them because of their popularity. So in a sense, they're jealous. In the original Greek, it actually describes these people as being disobedient Jews, or more precisely, those that refused to believe. Now understand that, those that refused to believe. In other words, they had the evidence, but they chose not to believe in the evidence that they had. 
The reason for doing this, argue those who've studied this, and I've looked at this from several different angles and other people, what they had to say, everybody says the same. It, says it seems very obvious that they didn't want to change because it wouldn't be popular with family and friends, with culture, with politics. They'd have to go against all those things. But isn't it natural of us when we don't want to take a position, we feel like our back is against the wall, all the evidence is against us, We've got to justify why we're not going to do it. And so we try to squash it down. We have a tendency to do that. Uh, somebody invites us to go out, and we don't want to go out, and we can't give a good reason why, so we just say, oh, it's, got, it's just got to be a horrible thing or whatever. You know, we, we have a tendency to, to let the logic go behind us. We get emotional. And these guys took it to another level. They feel like they have to destroy this to justify themselves. And so they go down to the marketplace, which is the center of town, and they get the rabble-rousers. And they stir them up, and they go into the place where Paul is staying, and they decide to get Paul and Silas and bring them out to the mob and beat them up like they did last time. But when they get there this time, Paul and Silas aren't there. They've hidden them. And so they take the host, Jason, and his family out. We don't know anything really about Jason. Common name, we don't really know much more about him than what we have here. But they have an interesting charge that they bring against them. And the charge literally is, is that these men have turned the world upside down. Very intriguing. This event, we know, and we can trace it because of the different names of people that are related in these stories as we go along. We can say that this is pretty much right around 50, the year A.D. 50. In the year A.D. 49, A.D. 50, there was an edict that was passed by the emperor of Rome, Caesar Claudius, and he banished all Jewish people from Rome. Why did he do it? Later years, the uh, historian Suetonius uh, says this about him. He says that, I don't read exactly what he says there because it's kind of interesting here. Um, he says that he did it because of constant riots at the instigation of Crestus. Crestus is the wrong word probably, but he could have made a mistake because Crestus is very similar to Christos, the Greek word for Christ. It sounds like the Jewish people and Christian people were having battles with each other in Rome, and so he kicked out all the Jews. No missionaries had gone to Rome yet. How did they know about Christ? The Jews in Rome would go to Jerusalem for Pentecost and for the Passover. Is it possible that these were people who had heard the message from chapter 2 from Peter when he first shared the gospel and then had gone back year after year and had been trained and taught by James and the others who headed up the church there in Jerusalem? It appears that was the case. And so now in Thessalonians, they're saying, look at how much trouble it's caused in Rome. They're turning the world upside down. Don't let them come here. They're paranoid. That's their first argument. And implied in that is these people are trying to create a new religion. And it's not sanctioned by the government. The Jewish people are sanctioned. These people are unsanctioned. This is illegal. And furthermore, they're saying that we should worship their God, uh, their King Jesus, over our emperor. Now, to the Jewish people, the most horrible thing you could do is say that you are God. That's blasphemy. To the Roman person, the most horrible thing you could do is say that somebody should be king over Caesar. 
And so they've got them on the religious grounds and they've got them on political grounds. And it's interesting because there's some half-truth to both, right? In a sense, this is a new religion. Of course, it will become Christianity. But if you read the writings, even of Paul, it becomes clear that God never intended that to be the case, that Judaism really flows right into Christianity. The two are inseparably linked. And then the second thing is that Jesus is king, and he is greater than Caesar, but Christianity never calls for us to overthrow the king or the leader. In fact, they're to pray for him and are always respectful. Nevertheless, this kind of drives it home. Now, there's an interesting point to make here. The city officials, Luke calls them polytarchs. Weird name, kind of dorky sounding. I wouldn't want to be elected if that was going to be my title, but <laughs> polytarchs. And, and, there's, and they used to mock Luke for this because in all of ancient literature, they've never been able to find this term. And so they said, he made this up. And that's one of the reasons we can't rely on the Bible. It's not reliable because, you know, you have these guys like Luke, just not a very good historian. He makes up names like Polytarch. He doesn't know what he's talking about. In the year 1835, they were dismantling this ark, this old ark over the, ro- the old Via Ignatian Road. And guess what? They found several inscriptions of Polytarch on it. Since then, they found it in quite a few other places. And so it proves that Luke really was a very precise uh, uh, historian and that there are reasons that we should believe, you know, what we read in this Bible, that it, it's, it's accurate. Anyway, these polytarchs have to make a decision what to do, and they're pretty mild about it, but after all, they don't have a lot of evidence, and they don't have any culprits. And so they basically find these guys some money, and they say, don't let this happen again. We don't want another big uprising over your new movement here. Just go home and leave us alone. And implied in that is probably, while we're polytarchs, we don't want Paul and Silas in town anymore either. Paul will later write to them, and he will say, um, that, that he's very disappointed that he can't come visit them, that he wants to time and again, but he realizes that he can't, that Satan has stopped him. And he's probably relating to this event. Paul will also tell them how proud he was of their courage in the situation and how they brought him great joy. Now, I want to make a couple observations about what we can learn so far. The first thing, have you ever noticed that people who are doing really well or people that are very prosperous or people who have a sense of power in their life and feel very secure about themselves, that they're not usually as receptive to the teachings of Jesus? Have you noticed that? And and the reason why, I think, is because Paul says, um, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And when things are going well, you don't want to hear that. The starting place to coming to know Christ is realizing that you need to know Christ. It's realizing that you're a broken person. And so these Thessalonian Jews, things were going well, and they didn't want anybody messing it up. It's It's an interesting observation. There's another observation, and that is that Paul teaches the basics. He gets right down to the basics, and he starts off, and he essentially tells these guys that they need to admit that they're sinners in need of a Savior. They need to believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. They need to choose to follow Christ and put their faith in him alone. That's the basics. But have you noticed that when you tell somebody that, do they usually say, oh, good, I'm ready, let's go? No, they usually don't. They usually have a lot more questions to ask. 
And that's when the reasoning comes in and the explaining comes in and the proving comes in from scriptures. And that's why it's important that we know our Bibles and we can answer their questions or have people we can go to that can help us answer those questions because it takes time. Building a relationship, coming into a true relationship with a person, even with the God of the universe, generally just doesn't happen like that. It's a period of time. I've had people that have told me, you know, I've said, well, how did you come to the Lord? And they say, well, I'm not even for sure. I've been coming to church for, you know, months, been listening to the sermons, been talking to friends, been going to Bible studies, been reading the Bible on my own, listening to some other things. And somewhere along the way, I just, you know, I just know I know Jesus now. So I encourage you to come talk to us if you have questions and we want to work through those things with you. But it's interesting how that happens, and we're part of that process. We work with people uh, in that process. Here's another thing. Have you ever noticed that hostility never starts with the head? Think about that. When somebody's hostile, is that an intellectual kind of thing? You see people sitting at the table with their hands, their hands folded, classmen talking very gently with each other and sipping tea and that kind of thing and talking about how hostile they feel? Doesn't happen, does it? Because when people are hostile, that's when they've, they've lost it. That's when it's become an emotional discussion, no longer an intellectual, logical discussion. That's why when you discuss anything, it gets that way. You need to try to diffuse it and bring it down because once a person becomes emotional, you've lost them. It's like trying to persuade, you know, a drunk person on Skid Row. You ever try to do that? It doesn't work well. I, I've actually had some progress with some drunk people before until the next day they don't remember talking with me. You, you know what I'm saying? Um, so you, you've, got, you, you've got to know what you're dealing with here, and that's how it is. When somebody gets emotional, th- it's the same kind of logic. They're not, their brains aren't able to, to be, think logically anymore. Uh, and that's how we have a lot of conflict uh, in the world. And so it's so important that we, we try to work with them and we try to be people that ourselves keep from letting our emotions control us. And finally, did you see the cost that these guys were willing to pay? to protect their pastor. Pay close attention to this. <laughs> I may ask you someday um, to hide me. Uh, <laughs> let's hope not, but uh, it happens in other places. And we think a lot of times, well, pastors and missionaries and stuff, they put their life on the line, but all of us as Christians are asked to put our life on the line. And we never know when it's going to happen. Remember the great story back during um, East Berlin when, before the wall came down and they'd been arresting pastors and on one occasion they came to arrest this pastor and the people of the church was circled around him. And they had to stand off and the police looked at them, they looked at each other, the police turned around and walked off. And that was the turning point in that conflict and the wall would come down days later. It doesn't always turn out that well, by the way. But we need to be willing to pay the, it wasn't until they were willing to pay the cost that it made a difference. And so we have a great example here uh, by Jason. Well, let's see what happens to Paul. Next thing that happens is at nighttime, they, get, they sneak away, Paul and Silas and probably Timothy, and they, they sneak them away, and they take them off the road. We had that down earlier. It's, they go down 50 miles south of Thessalonica. So they're off the main road. This is foreign territory. It kind of like, you know, they're going to put this corridor in here so it'll be a little bit different, but it's kind of like Oakdale, right? You know, we're off the beaten path. In fact, Berea was 
built, it was terraced. It's a terraced town at the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. No, at the foothills of the Olympian Range. A little village, actually. It was uh, real pretty. They had a big, they had a river there, kind of similar to us. And just a nice place. It's still there today. By the way, Thessalonica, if you want to visit it, is now Slonica. And uh, Berea is now Varia, with a V. Um, but it's still there. And it sounds like a quaint little village. At one time, it, had, it, had, it was a pretty big place. Uh, had at least a lot of people living there at this time. And they had a famous, they, they have there a famous and very colorful statue of Paul preaching in their marketplace that you can go see. So I've mentioned before some ideas for honeymoons. This is yet another. No, it's supposed to be neat. Now, Betty, you guys have been there, I bet. Have you been? Was it pretty? Very pretty, huh? You've been to all these places, you and, and Jean. You can go actually on a cruise, and they'll take you to all the places where Paul ministered. So, yeah, you talk to, to Betty and Jean about this. But uh, it's supposed to be very nice. And there they came uh, into Berea, and they thought they were safe. They're 50 miles away, and... They're only 20 miles from the coast, so they can make a quick getaway if they really had to. And they go right into a Jewish synagogue again. But this time, the people are really receptive. They want to learn. They really want to know if it's true. They're excited about it. And not only are they excited about it, but they're looking at the Bible and they're examining it. Anything that Paul tells them, they're examining it. The word for examine means a legal process, like going to court going to trial. They are like detectives that are trying to pick each sentence apart, each word apart, asking every question they can because they really want to know what is true and how to apply it to their lives. And they also want to know if they're being fit, you know, fooled. They want to know if it's the truth or not. And so they're asking these very good questions. And Paul is excited. And as a result, because they're sincere because they're dealing it with their heads, see, they, they, they haven't gotten emotional, but because they're logically looking at it, they're coming to know Christ. And they're coming in large numbers. The Jews are coming. The Greeks are coming. The Greek women are coming. Everybody's coming. And it's really an exciting ministry until the Thessalonian Jews come to town. They tracked them down, and they came down. Now, Thessalonia is a big town, and they're very powerful, so this puts the poor people in Berea, they're city officials, makes it pretty awkward for them. They don't want to mess with these guys from Thessalonica. So it's an awkward situation, and the brothers and sisters in Christ realize this does not look good. They're going to go after Paul. And so they whisk him out of there, and they, they head out of town. It's interesting. It never says that he sailed from the seaport to Athens. And that's what you would normally do. He goes next to Athens, but he doesn't sail there. It appears that he went by land, and we've wondered what exactly happened. And, and actually, what many people feel, and this seems to be true, is that it was a ruse. In other words, the clever Bereans fooled the arrogant Thessalonians. They knew the Thessalonians would be on their trail. So they headed like they were going towards the coast, and then they cut south. And the Thessalonians kept going. And they got there just in time to see uh, the Carnival cruise ship leaving on its way. And they said, oh, he must have been on that. He's going back to America. So they, they think he's long gone. But he's not. He's escaped their clutches thanks to the Brian brothers. And he's now walking along the coast going 195 miles. So several days took place before they finally got him to Athens. And he's with some other 
you know, brothers, their family, probably members of the Bereans, and they're taking care of him. And we're not going to talk a lot about Athens today other than to say it was probably the intellectual center of the world at the time. And he thought, this is another strategic place. I better get the guys down with me. Go, get, go tell them to come and be with me. And we don't know a lot more about Timothy. And, and um, you know, we don't know that much about Timothy and Silas. It doesn't tell us as much about them. But later on, we'll see in chapter 18 and also in Paul's writings that they did come to be with him in Athens. And then I think he sent them back. From what it looks like is he sent them both back, Timothy the Thessalonica, and Silas to Philippi for business, and then they came back again. So these guys are doing a lot of work uh, for Paul. But that sort of, you know, brings us to where we're at. And, and I want to look at some observations on this. And the first one is we need to humble ourselves to receive the Lord. The Bereans didn't have as much, but they came humbly. They recognized they had a need. Like First Timothy, or rather First Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says that, you know, when we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. And so they come in a humble fashion. The other thing is they want to learn. They want to learn. When I used to coach, you know, wrestling, you know, I used to work as an assistant coach, did that for a, a number of seasons. And one of the things I noticed is that there were some kids that had tremendous potential, very, very gifted, but they never reached their potential. You know why? They didn't care. They, they knew everything they knew. They didn't know. You couldn't teach them anything. And I saw some other kids that didn't have much potential who did way better because they, you got everything you could out of that kid because they were, wanted to learn and grow. And I think that's the same thing for us with the Bible. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are. If you want to you give it all to God, God will do incredible things in your life. Um, and then, you know, I just see that for them, um, they, it's this whole idea that you come to know Christ, you can't get enough. You ever notice that? They just want more and more and more of the Bible. You just, you can't get enough. My wife this last week made some, a new cookie recipe. Um, and, and, you know, these were chocolate chip cookies with, with oatmeal in it. And they were crispy on the outside and then inside, it was almost like doughy, so it's just kind of melting your mouth. And it was really difficult to stop. You know what I mean? She almost had to pull out a shotgun and say, it's time to stop now. Because especially when they were warm, you know. How about, though, you know, for us, you know, with the Bible, that's how the Bible should be for us. You just keep wanting to go back and learn more. You keep, what was that that I learned the other day? What, and, and there's so many creative ways you can study the Bible. You can, you can just take one word, like grace. You get that in there for, that's, that's Joe's favorite word, or faith, or something. You can just think about that all day long. What does that mean? You can take a verse and memorize it and, and think about it all day long. You can read a chapter and think about what did that chapter mean to me all day long. Or you can get more specific and you can do an inductive study or a deductive study. You can do a word study. You can do a study on people, places, and things. I mean, it's not, it's not that simple. You know, it, it just it goes on and on. And you can just have fun with it. And you can do that with others. That's when it's most fun. So, uh, you know, when you can learn from one another. So you just keep learning by yourself and with others. That's, that's what we have before us, and that's what these guys were doing. That's the example that they have before us. Um, one other thing is, did you notice that they are not going to blindly follow anybody because they know what they believe in? 
years ago when we were a young married couple, we uh, were short on cash and needed to make sure we took care of our teeth. So we looked for an inexpensive dentist. We were living on the San Francisco Peninsula at the time. We went to one. He took x-rays and told me I had seven cavities. The problem was I don't get cavities. I think it's a genetic thing. My wife hates me for it. But I, I don't generally get cavities. So I've only had five cavities my whole life. And uh, two of those came when I had braces on. And I couldn't brush them as well. So I just don't get cavities that much. So we thought, something going on here. Went and saw another dentist, took x-rays, no cavities. See what's going on there? Now, if that happens with life, you know, I mean, we see, we see this kind of stuff happen all, in all areas of life, right? People do that with cars, right? People do that with business deals that we have. Can people do that in churches? They can. And sometimes they don't even mean to do it. I mean, I have made mistakes that people come up and say, did you say this? I said, yeah, I think so. You know what you were saying? Oh, I didn't, you know, so we all make honest mistakes. So that's why the responsibility is on you. You need to know your Bibles. And you need to be able to hold guys like me accountable and make sure that you're learning on your own. We've talked about the tale of two cities. How about the tale of two people? There's two kinds of people. There's believers and there's unbelievers. And they both break into their own categories. So if you, you look at subsets, so if you're an unbeliever, I think there's two primary types of unbelievers. There is what I would call the obstinate unbeliever. This is the person who says, I don't believe what you say, and I don't need it. I've got everything figured out. This is the nonconformist who dutifully conforms to nonconformity. Okay? And they're going to be with whatever group they're with, and that's what's right at that time. And it's right because that's how they feel and because well, that's what's best for them. And they don't believe in the facts because they really don't believe in truth. Whatever feels good, that's what you do. So that's, that's a, the one side. I can't, I remember a friend of mine, remember they used to have those old cars that said, you know, on the back bumper sticker used to say, if it feels good, do it. This guy rammed that car. The guy got out and go, what did you do? He says, I just felt like it, you know. So, uh, but... But you can, you, can see, you can see the logic sometimes of that, but that's where you know, the obstinate unbeliever is at. Then you have, you have the investigative unbeliever. And they may come at different levels, but they're willing to actually use their brain and say, I want to see what's going on here. And I'll look at it, and they may not buy into it, but those that really are serious are going to look into it more because they'll say, you know, there's a difference between hot and cold. There's a difference in, in, in logic. You know, I mean, there's mathematically, some equations work and some equations don't. There's got to be, there's right and there's wrong. Sometimes people are lying to me and it hurts me, so I know there's an opposite of lying. That's non-truth. There's got to be truth. So what is the truth? I want to know what the truth is, even if it hurts me. I want to know the truth. And that person will read the Bible, they'll study the Bible, they'll come to church, they'll read other books, they'll get in the Bible study, they'll spend time with believers, and invariably, if they do that much, they'll come to know Christ. That's the investigative believer. Now, how about the tale of the believer? There's two kinds of believers. There's the lethargic believer. That's a person who came to know Christ and it was really exciting, and then as time went on, 
they just really don't have time to read their Bible anymore. It's hard. They want to, but you just, it's just so busy, and there's so many good programs on these days. Um, and they don't have time, and, and they pray when it's an emergency or when the kids go to bed at night but, or when, at, at, at Grace when they say Grace at their meals. But it just, it's just not part of their lives anymore. They come to church, you know, kind of irregularly. Uh, it varies. And they listen to what pastors and stuff say as long as they feel good about it, as long as it kind of fits with what they like. You know, bottom line is they just want to be happy and have an easy life. Isn't that why they came to know Christ in the first place? You see, and that, that's, that's kind of, that's that person. That's the person who's kind of lethargic. But then you have the growing believer. And I think that's where we should be. The growing believer reads their Bible. They, you know, they spend time every day, even if they're extremely busy, they at least read a little bit and they chew on it and they think about it all day long. They, they pray and they talk to God all day long. They build relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. They get in small groups. They go to church. They tell other people about Jesus. They train other people and help them to grow in their relationship with the Lord. Uh, they know what they believe in. They know the truth and they know that they know the truth because they've seen it, they've twisted it every which way but loose. And it's part of who they are. And that's where we want to be. So I want to get back to something, and, and that is where we started today. We talked about the tale of two cities, two cities that represented two countries, actually, England and France in the 18th century. Do you know much about that history? Let's look at it from a spiritual perspective as well as a historical one. In the 18th century, England was in a bad place. Um, I like what they said here about England. They said that it was a moral quagmire and a spiritual cesspool. Thomas Carlyle, the great writer, described it in this way. He said, the country's condition was as, uh, he said, stomach well alive, soul extinct. There was so much drunkenness and gambling that one historian called England one vast casino. And Dr. Catherine, Diane, Dr. Diane Severance, in her article, Evangelical Revival in England, uh, wrote this. She said, newborns were exposed in the streets. 97% of the infant poor in the workhouses died as children. Bear baiting and cockfighting were accepted sports, and tickets were sold to public executions as to a theater. The slave trade brought material gain to many while further degrading their souls. Bishop Berkeley wrote that morality and religion in Britain had collapsed to a, to a degree that was never known in any Christian country. In the 1730s, a man named George Whitfield began preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. At this point, they weren't even reading the Bible anymore in churches or talking about the gospel. And he was popular with many, but, you know, the hierarchy got upset and they kicked him out. So he began preaching on the streets and in the fields. In one example, he went to Wales to the mine, miners in Wales. He shared Christ with these hardened men, and you could see streaks of tears that had run down their cheeks and their coal, their cheeks full of coal. And people just in numbers just began to come to know Christ. Soon he brought in his friends, uh, two brothers named John and Charles Wesley. And they began to help him. 
and they began, John especially organized everything. John Wesley alone traveled thousands of miles. I think it was estimated once he rode so many miles on his horse he could have gone all the way around the globe. He preached hundreds of sermons. He started innumerable small group Bible studies. That was the base of everything he did, and he reached out to help the community. It didn't happen overnight. It took decades. But over decades, morality began to return. William Wilberforce was touched by this movement and was used by God to end the slave trade in England. And things began to turn around. The Victorian age would come out, and some people have lampooned that, but it basically was a, a whole, it was like a 180-degree turn for England. England had become an evangelical center and a place of morality. And they likewise went on to be the most powerful um, and economically prosperous country in the world. France was having the same problems. They didn't look to God. They looked to the age of reason, and they looked to the age of enlightenment. And it resulted in the French Revolution, the reign of terror, the Napoleonic Wars, and the demise of their country. People look back at it now, and historians say that those Wesleyan revivals, that was the thing that saved England, or they would have been in the same place. And I tend to agree. There are actually many other examples like that you could look at, but this is well documented and is a pretty famous example. The tale of two cities, the same two cities, but that's what really happened, you know, at the end. I think that Paris, as a city, basically followed the example of Thessalonica. But London followed the example of Berea. My prayer for us as a church, as a community, as a people is that we will always be Bereans. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for the example of the Bereans. We don't know much more about them, but uh, what an example they gave for us. And I pray that we would be Bereans and we would study your word, learn from it, and be very earnest about growing in our relationship with you. And if anybody doesn't know you, that uh, they would come to know you as they would earnestly seek you as well. We pray these things in your name. Amen.